0: You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: Once the decision was made by an orphanage to put the children on the train, there was no turning back and the parents weren't allowed to take them. The children were told that their pasts began when they got onto the train. They had no parents, they had no families, they had no past. They weren't allowed to think or talk about it, they they were told, "Your, your life begins
2: now the importance of giving back and doing the right thing and helping others whether it's through a bigger picture goal through food or by just volunteering my time those things are important to me
0: the dr lisa radio hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors Maine magazine marcy booth of booth maine apothecary by design mike lepage and beth franklin of remax heritage Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. Show number 157, Fostering Family Connections, airing for the first time on Sunday, September 14, 2014. Families come in many forms. Regardless of how they are created, they have a significant impact on our later lives, Today we speak with Christina Baker-Klein, best-selling author of The Orphan Train, and businesswoman Catherine York. Their family experiences have greatly influenced their work and personal evolution. We hope you enjoy our conversations with Christina and Catherine. Thank you for joining us. Anybody who listens to the radio show on a regular basis knows what a big reader I am. And one of my favorite things to do is to pick up a book read it, find myself completely um, engaged, and then get a chance to meet the person who wrote the book that had me spellbound for hours at a time. Today we have that individual with us today. This is Christina Baker Klein. She is a novelist, nonfiction writer, and editor who wrote the number one New York Times bestseller Orphan Train, as well as Bird in Hand, The Way Life Should Be, Desire Lines, and Sweetwater. Christina lives with her family in Montclair, New Jersey, and spends summers on Mount Desert Island. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. This book is, is, is truly a great book. I really enjoyed it, in part because of the writing. Obviously, the writing is great, but also it was such an interesting story, The Orphan Train. Tell people who are listening who who may not have read it before what this book is about.
1: Yeah, okay. So my novel is about a 91-year-old woman who lives on the coast of Maine. She's a wealthy widow in a big old house. And the 17-year-old girl who comes into her life who is a troubled, goth, part Penobscot Indian foster kid who's had a really hard time of it steals a book from the library, and has to do community service. So she comes to work for this old woman, and her job is to help clean out the attic. And her attitude is that she just wants to get it over with, because she thinks they have nothing in common, and it's just this old woman who you know, has a lot of money and really doesn't look anything like her, act anything like her either. And so over the course of the novel, however, as she begins to unpack the boxes she realizes that this is that this woman has a hidden past as an orphan train rider uh... and so not only that which i'll explain in just a second but um, they also come to understand that they have a lot more in common than they ever would have imagined in terms of the kind of childhood that they both share so through their friendship they discover things about themselves that they never would have known um, and the orphan trains are this kind of incredible piece of American history that's been hidden in plain sight. 250,000 children, perhaps more even, were sent from the East Coast to the Midwest over 75 years. It was the largest migration of children in our nation's history from 1854 to 1929, and very few people know about it. And it was a labor program. The children were between the ages of 2 and 14 years old, and they were sent to the Midwest specifically indentured and contracted to work for farmers and other people who chose them randomly. There was no screening process. They were just given to whoever showed up. So they had to line up by height, and they stood on platforms, and people tested their muscles and their teeth and made them run in place. And... Uh, It really was, in some ways, it resembled a slave auction. Um, The children aged out at 18, but until then, they were sort of the property of the people who took them. So it's a sort of chilling um, and surprising, I think, bit of our own past, again, that we don't tend to know much about.
3: My children learned about the orphan train when we went to Ellis Island. And actually, your book is referenced when yeah. you go to the Ellis Island, um, I guess, museum. And they were surprised to hear about it, too. And, and the bigger surprise, I think, wasn't that there were orphan children that were moved across the country, although that is sort of horrifying enough, but also that some of these children weren't orphaned at all. Some of these children were just taken off the streets and, I guess, called orphans. So the orphan train movement, actually,
1: it's, it's, it's a misnomer, because only about 30% of them were orphans. The rest were abandoned, they were taken out of homes, they were runaways, and they were actually plucked off the streets. Uh, parents would caution, poor parents would caution their children not to go out after six, because they might be picked up by the police and put into an orphanage and taken onto a train. So, yes, a lot of them had parents who were alive. And what happened is that the parents, uh, the children were told that their pasts began when they got onto the train. They had no parents, they had no families, they had no past. They weren't allowed to think or talk about it, they they were told. Your, Your life begins now. So the chaperones, they often were given new names. Their birth certificates were altered, destroyed, and locked up. Um, and they were allowed no access oftentimes even parents would show up on a train station platform and want to either take their children back or give them something that would identify them so that they could find them later, give them a letter or something. I actually went through an archive of those materials at New York Public Library. They were not given to the children. They were taken from them, and they were um, the parents were turned away. Once the decision was made by an orphanage to put the children on the train, there was no turning back, and the parents weren't allowed to take them.
3: You described children who were um, quite young. Some of these kids were actually placed in the care of older children and just sort of sat on the trains and then moved out, and they were separated from all that they had ever known from a very young age. Yeah. So as I mentioned, obviously two-year-olds aren't going to be working
1: in the fields, right, or in the household, as girls tended to do. Um, But by four, young children were working. Um, poor. You have to remember that in the 1850s when this started, and actually all the way up through, children were property, and poor children were labor, pure and simple. Pure children worked, whether it was on a farm or in New York. Um, so the concept was humanitarian, actually. The man who came up with this was a Methodist minister named Charles Loring Brace, and his idea was... Um, Philanthropic. He wanted to get these poor children off the streets because there was no social mobility, there was no welfare, there was no foster care, there were no child labor laws, no child welfare laws, no protection for the poor, no safety net and no social programs of any kind. So it was a brutal situation for many, many immigrants. And these children were dying of disease and starvation, um, exposure. They were going to prison. They were becoming prostitutes. They were headed nowhere good. They were joining gangs. And Brace looked around and saw that there were 30,000 children on the streets of New York, literally homeless, living on the streets, like India, like what we think of, or Dickensian London, we tend to think of. But actually, New York was really similar to London in the mid-1900s. And so these children had nowhere to go. Um, The orphanages were overcrowded. When, When Brace's orphanage, which was called the Children's Aid Society, got too full, they housed children in the jail with prisoners. So you can imagine how advantageous that was. And he had this kind of fresh air fund idea. He thought, let's get the children onto these bucolic farms with sheep dotting the meadow and big red barns and wraparound porches on white farmhouses. He had this sort of idealized view of what it would be like, but he thought, you know, get some healthy, fresh air and get them off the streets. Furthermore, he was Methodist, and his intention was also, he also had this sort of evangelical bent. He wanted to get these heathen, Jewish, Catholic, non-practicing children into good, solid Protestant, preferably Methodist homes. So he sent them to the Midwest. And the truth is, I must say, that even though many of these children knew that they were labor, they went into homes where they perhaps had rocky transitions, eventually, I would say, and the train riders themselves say, and by the way, as I say, out of 250,000 train riders, there, were, there are now more than 4 million descendants. So there's all this research being done about the train riders now. Um, but they say that they probably ended up better off than they would have if they'd stayed in New York. So even though now we would consider that it's a fairly barbaric idea to send children without any screening and any real oversight uh, onto trains through the, to the Midwest to random homes, I think ultimately they they lived most of them, and they eventually found their footing. And the vast majority of train riders not only stayed in the small in the states that they were put into, but they stayed in the small communities that they landed in. Um, And as one train rider said to me, I had been through so much turmoil, I just wanted to stay put.
3: The main character, or one of the main characters in the book, is actually a a modern child who is being taken out of a family situation and put into a different family situation. So there is a parallel there with um, the woman, the older woman that she meets that is a train rider.
1: That's right. I work with a lot of foster care organizations um, now since the book came out and there's a foster child in it. But I also did a lot of research um, and I have friends who've taken in foster children. And I know that even though, actually, I did a benefit the other night and a former foster child had spoke. He was so amazing and he was about 21. And he came up to me at the end because I spoke as well and he said, the feeling, the, the situation of the train riders is its own unique thing. But I have to tell you, reading your book, the feelings I had as a foster child are the same. The circumstances are different, but the feelings you have being displaced, feeling unwanted and unloved, and that you don't have a home is exactly the same way it felt to me. So when I wrote the book, I I actually wasn't calculated about the connections. I stumbled into their relationship, having these resonances. Instinctively, I felt that having this 91-year-old woman, like many train riders, had never told her story. And I didn't think that she would tell it to just anyone. I thought it would have to be someone who was sort of on the social fringes, maybe who was not wouldn't be asking the normal questions or just politely wanting to know, but instead would have a motivation for asking. And so that's how I came up with the idea of Molly, this character. And there were many other reasons that I chose this the Penobscot Indian angle and all of that stuff. Um, my mother was very involved with the Wabanaki; she was a state legislator in Maine. I grew up in Maine, so I. Was drawn to her, um, I think, unconsciously, um, understanding that there were connections. But as as anybody who writes fiction knows, you often don't know why you're writing a story until you're telling it. The writing begets the revelations, it's usually not the other way around that you calculatedly kind of figure out what the elements are and put them into a story. You often have to follow your instinct and trust that you're being led somewhere that will be fruitful. And that's what happened to me in this book. The connections between them only became obvious as I wrote my way into the story.
3: Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth, here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial.
4: Sometimes I meet with married or partnered clients and when we get to talking about their financial lives, a cultural divide bubbles to the surface. One person feels one way about their money and the other seems to be on their own financial island with a set of beliefs and rules that have created unnecessary borders and boundaries. It's not an uncommon thing And when I hit those situations, I do my best to help both people understand that neither is 100% right or wrong, that they simply have to take a step back and look at their own financial life in a new light. It is also true in politics and economics. What we need to do is see money as a living thing that can be used to grow our lives together without disagreement or so-called border issues. It's a great feeling for me it's like I'm helping people negotiate peace treaties with their money. Be in touch if you want to know more. Tom at Shepherd Financial Maine will help you evolve with your money.
0: Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial, are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, Visit www.Bangor.com.
3: As a result of the success of Orphan Train, you're, you're being asked to do many events, lots of community reads, um, and it seems as though this has really touched people in, in a big way. Why do you think that that's true?
1: I thought about that a lot because this is my fifth novel and honestly I like them all. <laughs> and the other ones did have done pretty well, but nothing on the scale of this novel, um, which will soon have sold a million copies, it's, it's a completely different experience. And honestly, it feels like a fluke to me and uh, I feel both lucky to experience and a, it and a little overwhelmed. Believe me, I've thought about this a lot because uh, when I was writing the book and I and my publisher had no idea, in fact, I remember at one point they said, well, we're not sure that you're going to, you know, after I'd finished it, if that you're going to hit the demographic because you've got this odd 17-year-old and then this cranky 91-year-old and who's going to read about those people? We don't know. Um, so it kind of unfolded slowly. And in fact, the book has been out for over a year, and it climbed the bestseller list slowly, and then it just hung on. So it's been a kind of slow build. I think the truth is that a lot of people are interested in this story about America that they didn't know. I have a lot of men who come to events and write me, who say they never have read any of my books, and... Uh, thought that they were women's books, and that now, with this historical angle, they're interested in it. So there's that aspect. I think a lot of people are wondering how to handle displaced children in our society. There's a lot of talk about the foster care system and how to improve it and make it better. I think there's that part of the story. And I also think, probably, that the connection between between generations is something that a lot of people are interested in and thinking about as people live longer. Um, I have a lot of mother and daughter book clubs who (laughs) come up to me at events. Um, I have grandmothers and granddaughters reading the story together. So there's something, too, about that connection uh, between these unlikely friends that has, I believe, struck a chord. I'm not sure. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Those are the ones that come to mind for me.
3: I, I think that you probably have hit it. I mean, when I read this book, after I was done with it, I gave it to my 18-year-old, and I also have a 13-year-old daughter, and I said, you really need to read this book, because there was something about it. I, I think I felt the same thing, and I don't, I'm not in a mother-daughter book club, and she and I don't always read the same books, but there was something about it, I think, that um, the bond between— the two women in the book. And it it was sort of a family bond, even though the 91-year-old and the 17-year-old weren't actually related.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I've heard that a lot. A lot of parents say, it was so wonderful to talk to my girl or boy uh, or children about what it really was like to be a child in that period, because they have no idea. And we they say, these people who come up to me at readings often say, we have a sort of fairly comfortable life. And they just didn't know that children have not always lived this way. The idea that children were considered labor, and that there was no such thing as childhood, is shocking to people, um, especially, you know, children who have never really heard about that before. And by children, I mean, teens, really, I would say 13, I have a number of 13 year olds who have communicated with me who've read the book. I would say most readers started around 14, it seems, fourteen, fifteen, 15, um, because there are a few scenes in the book that are a little um, disturbing, although not particularly graphic, I would say.
3: You just bought a house in Maine. Yeah. You have roots in Maine. You're friends with uh, Genevieve Morgan, our former co-host for the show, and also Melissa Coleman, a former writer for Maine Magazine. So the Maine connection for you is strong. Do you think that this in some way contributes to your, um, your writing, your passion for writing, your connection to writing, your inspiration?
1: Oh, my gosh, no question. Maine is my field, is my... Um, sort of homeland I was we were fairly itinerant when I was young I was born in England my parents are southern they're from North Carolina and Georgia but when I was six we moved here and continued to kind of go back and forth to England I lived there nine years altogether. we lived in the south a few years when I was young my relatives are all southern but but that's a really long time so my parents have been here since I was six they were at the University of Maine my mother was, as I mentioned, was in the legislature. They l- retired to um, Bass Harbor. My mother died a year ago, sadly, um, really sadly, young, 73, um, of a stroke that was unexpected and it was shocking. I have three sisters one of whom lives in Maine year round. But we all have made that little corner of Mount Desert Island home. My parents settled there. One sister lives there year round with her carpenter husband and her four small children. She's a librarian at Bass Harbor Memorial Library. And then my other two sisters and I both live, we live in New York and Washington and I live in Montclair, just outside of New York. But we all have houses. In, within two miles. So we're here as much as we can. And actually, I love to be here. I bought a house because I want to be here as much as I can during the year. I have two boys who are now, one's entering college this year and one's a freshman. So they're sort of launching. And then I have a 14-year-old who's entering high school. So it's feeling more possible for me to spend more time here. My husband and I both love it a lot. He's from the Midwest, which is how I was inspired to write Orphan Train. His grandfather was a train rider. But uh, this is where we really want to be and where I'm so
3: excited to have a house. (laughs) I'm really excited. It's interesting that you're kind of hitting your stride I guess even though you I, I haven't read your other books, I must admit. I'll go back and read them now, I promise. <laughs> they're all being re-released. But good, With Good new covers and looking beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm sure they're wonderful and I will read them because I do love to read. So but it is interesting that you're hitting your stride at least um, from a popularity standpoint, just as you've kind of you're moving your kids up through the ranks. and yet you've been a writer, even as you've been a mother all the way through.
1: I've been a working writer almost my entire professional. Well, I've been a working writer forever. Um, I've always written. I have 10 books. I have five novels and five nonfiction books that I've written or edited. I'm doing an anthology now, and I'm writing a new novel that takes place in Maine. Um, I have been a working writer, like many, many of my friends. um, And I've done, some books have been successes, and some have not been so successful, but I've always taught, I've edited, I've found a way to have writing as a career, um, a vocation and an avocation all the way through. But this is a really different thing, as I've said, and um, now the way, the juggling, I'm still juggling, as I was before, but the juggling, I'm juggling different things. Now I'm juggling how to sort of write my new novel and do appearances and do work for and with the the, the body of my work that's already happened instead of scrambling to um, edit new things to make money and teach to make money. And I love teaching, but I have discovered, it's such a cliche, but that you can have it all, just not all at the same time, as they say. And I think that's really true for me. The other thing is, I've always said this, but it's it's great to be a writer because it's it's not like being a supermodel where you have a shelf life. I mean, I can write until I'm a hundred, and so and I hope to. I hope to keep writing forever. I it feels like a very very long distance run, and part of the joy for me of this experience with Orphan Train is that I've had so many varied experiences with my books, and I. If this had happened to me at the beginning, I just would have no idea what it was like to really persevere when you weren't sure what was going to happen. And now I feel I've got that body of experience behind me. And when I give talks to, write, to groups of writers or aspiring writers, um, I feel I have a lot to share about my own experience. And that is something you gain with age. Christina, what can we look forward to from you in the future? My next novel is inspired by the painting Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth, and it's actually her story. It's written in the first person, and she tells the story of uh, what she's doing in that field and what she's looking at and what it has to do with her very interesting real life story. I've been working with several tour guides at the Wyeth house in Cushing, Maine. Um, I've been reading everything I can get my hands on And I've discovered that her story, her ancestry, how they got to Cushing and how she ended up there and what her passions were and how they manifested themselves is so interesting that you almost don't need to write a novel about it. But I am. (laughs) But I am writing a novel. So I'm using as much as I can from her real life.
3: Well, I look forward to that. And I know that people who are listening also will look forward to it. And also, anybody who has not yet read Orphan Train, I highly recommend it. How do people find out about your work, Christina? Well, actually,
1: on my website, which is just my name.com, ChristinaBakerKlein.com, or my Facebook author page, which is my public page, I have events. And if people want to catch up with me in the summer I'll be doing some events with um, Ayelet Waldman who has a new novel called Love and Treasure in Maine I'll be doing that and uh, also on my website I have a tab called book clubs and it has tons of information about the nonfiction aspect of Orphan Train and I also answer the top 10 questions that people tend to ask.
3: We are so pleased that you were able to um come into our studio talk with us today for people who know the show we that you may know that we schedule people far in advance and we actually just accidentally called you up and got you to come in at the last minute so we're really privileged to have you here we've been speaking with christina baker klein novelist non-fiction writer and editor and author of the number one new york times bestseller orphan train thanks so thank much you. for coming in thank you for having me <laughs> As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When asked, most of my clients say the same thing about what keeps them up at night. Money.
2: Making certain cash flow is there to meet day-to-day operational needs. Oh my gosh, is payroll going to be able to make it? When we dig deeper, we understand that those sleepless nights are symptoms of poor planning and forecasting. And more often than not, the reasons for not doing it are a lack of time and a lack of resources. So here's a suggestion. Instead of living in fear of the numbers and losing sleep over them, make peace with them by paying closer attention to the financials and creating positive cash flow. I'm Marcy
3: Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of REMAX Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With REMAX Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
3: I think we all have had times in our lives where we've spent, um, we've had relationships with people and known them a certain way, we've known them from a business standpoint or we've known them socially, and then we hear more about their stories and it causes us to pause a little bit. And this next individual is a pretty great person in and of her own right and just um, when you first meet her you will definitely agree. Um, But then when you hear her story you'll think, wow. There's there's something really big going on here, and you'll be even more appreciative of um, what she's managed to do in her life. Catherine York is the co-founder of the Gilded Nut Snack Company, where she directs growth strategy and investing. She is originally from Presque Isle and Waterville. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Catherine, you guys have great snacks. I just want to start with that, because sure. you do this um, really interesting flavors of pistachios which i love i can't get enough of them i eat them probably far too often (laughs) glad to hear Um, that (laughs) yes i am sure yeah and you and john um have really done a great job getting the pistachios into stores all over the state of maine Mm -hmm. and elsewhere i'm assuming Mm -hmm. why pistachios
2: well they're really john's creation uh we lived in the virgin islands for well he lived there for eight years lived there for three and a half and that's where we met And his buddies used to take him out on boat trips, and he was always the guy making food because he's an amazing cook. And he'd bring snacks and water. Amazingly, all these guys would get together and nobody ever had water, so he'd bring water and chicken salad and all kinds of crazy things, and he started making pistachios. He would take these plain pistachios, which he really liked but he didn't love, and he'd throw them in a bowl and kind of mix them like he does a salad. Um, trying different concoctions and pulling out whole herbs and spices from his pantry and and that's how the Gilded Nut was created. And we moved from the islands to San Francisco for the work that I was doing at the time in solar energy. And he thought, it, you know, I'm in San Francisco, the foodie town of America. If I don't do this now, I never will. And that's, that's sort of how it started. Um, the way it's structured, we're able to really live anywhere and do it and so when we made the decision to move back home for me after being gone for 20 or so years, um, he was able to pick it up and so uh, we've had a lot of love from main stores and hotels including the Camden Harbor Inn um, and we're in um, a bunch of luxury hotels, Ritz-Carlton's, Mandarin Orientals, etc. around the country.
3: I believe I first started um, eating your pistachios maybe at the Kenny Bunkport Festival last year. That was how I think I was, and probably a little before that. Um, but there really is, is something different. About them, you know the taste combinations, the spices. It, it they definitely feel very lovingly crafted.
2: Oh, well, thank you. We actually launched them at the Kenny Bunkport Festival. Um, John was was working really hard with the folks who were uh, crafting the message and the packaging and so forth with the deadline of the Kenny Bunkport Festival. So that's where they were launched, and um, the Kenny Bunkport uh, Collection Hotel Collection, KRC Resort Collection. There we go. Um, allowed us to put them in all the rooms and so all the guests for the festival had a chance to to try them. And the flavor combinations of John's, I mean he literally started with let me add a little paprika, let me try smoked paprika and Hungarian paprika and so he tried different combinations so aside from sea salt and pepper they're all unique to to his creations.
3: Why is it called the Gilded Nut?
2: Pulp and Wire around the corner uh, helped us with the name development and we wanted something that was fun. Um, But we also wanted to uh, demonstrate through a name the fact that we were taking nuts or snacks and other healthy snacks in the future and um, coating them with different things that would be healthy. And the healthy aspect of it is the most important thing for us. Um, We only use uh, whole ingredients. We never use any uh, preservatives or... Uh, dextrose, maltodextrin, those crazy ingredients, which many of them have, um, uh, are are GMO derivatives or um, have <clears> or <throat> come from things like corn or soy, which are big GMO no nos. Um, so that's a very important facet of the business for us.
3: Food is important to you. I know that not only was John providing food for your. Um, sailing trips, boating trips around the Virgin Islands, but you also were providing food. And food is, the growth of food has become important to you as well. You're investing in a company that's doing some interesting work. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Uh, By 2050,
2: we expect, uh, or I should say professional, other professionals expect that there will be between 10 and 11 billion people uh, in the world. And 70% of those people will live in urban areas. And so the way we grow food now is unsustainable. The fact that in the winter time, you and I get our leafy greens from California uh, is a problem because of the carbon footprint, because it's grown to be picked early, uh, it's grown to be shipped, to be bounced around, and so there's really, um, even when it's organic, it's not necessarily as healthy as it can be. And So after a lot of research, I uh, decided to invest in a company that's out of the Netherlands, or the technology development is out of the Netherlands, Uh, to grow leafy greens under LED lights vertically inside so we can take modular units and put them into any warehouse in the world which means we can grow sustainably uh, in urban areas.
3: And the name of the company that's going to be forthcoming with this soon? Yes.
2: The name of my company is uh, Constant Harvest, which the brand company here helped me with. Um, And uh, the, the hope is that I will be I will have the North America license for that technology.
3: This is exciting work that you're doing, and clearly something that you um, have been very thoughtful about. Very, I guess the word is mindful of the impact that you have not only in the the smaller level of the business, but also in the larger world. How did some of this come from your background? I know that you spent time. Um, being raised by a family that really had a dedication to kind of bigger bigger things. Tell me about that.
2: I think part of it first comes from growing up in Aroostook County. Um, I grew up picking potatoes as a young kid, and back then it doesn't happen anymore. But back then, kids in grade school, junior high school, and high school picked potatoes. Um, so I, you know, can still feel the dirt under my fingernails and, um, and remember what that's like helping a community get through a harvest um, as a young person. So that was part of it. And the other part of it was um, uh, I, from a very early age, well I guess I was in eighth grade, spent time in various foster homes and eventually um, was taken into a long-term foster care uh, home by a family which became my family. I mean, they are my family. Uh, we never went through a formal adoption process, but, um, and they are the most giving people I know. I mean, uh, one of the best stories is uh, that when Halloween would come around, Uh, in our neighborhood. The kids would, you know, toilet paper every house and they would never touch ours because my dad was the kind of person that if any of the troubled kids had any issues at home, they would come and spend the night at our house or come for a meal or something like that. So um, the importance of giving back and doing the right thing and helping others, whether it's through a sort of, you know, bigger picture goal, through food, um, or for, or by just, Uh, volunteering, my time. Those things are important to me.
3: I've noticed in my conversations with you um, and in my friendship with you that family is, is a big deal. I mean, we just had a conversation on the sidewalk about all the people who have visited you over the summer in Maine, and yet you wouldn't have it any other way. This is really important to have your nieces and nephews and all of the people that enrich your life. But you talk about being in foster homes mm-hmm. from an early age. So that, that it's, it's also a very purposeful thing that you're doing, is surrounding yourself with people that you care about.
2: For sure. I think it's something that's evolved. Um, certainly as a very young kid, um, I came from a home where there was a lot of chaos. Um, my, my biological mother, who still lives in Presque Isle, uh, was an immigrant from the Philippines, uh, didn't have a lot of resources, um, was divorced very early after she came here, had three kids, and didn't really know how to make things work for young people. Um, so I think it was really tough for her. And uh, around my junior high school years, uh, I was having a lot of trouble in the school. I mean, I was getting straight A's and I was an athlete, but I was also causing trouble. I was the class clown and I probably at the time had the most detentions for girls, which at the time I'm sure I was very proud of. (laughs) But that was a reflection of needing attention. So we always see young people who are troubled and, and people want to be around the kids that are that are that are good or speak well or doing well in school but really the the people the kids who need the attention are the ones who are acting up because they're acting up or out because they are not getting the attention they need elsewhere in their lives right um so i think that uh for me uh was the way i got attention was you know going through um school and different programs and so forth trying to get attention. And I I later learned that um, that I wanted positive attention and so I really focused on my my studies um, and uh, and other things that were were more positive and by being taken in by this family uh, they helped to impress the importance of that on me um, and showed me what it was like to have a family. Um, This is a long long answer to your question, but the, that journey was so important for me um, being without a family structure and then having a family structure, which is very foreign to me, and um, and even through high school, I was still trying to figure that out, like you know, I was with them through high school, but it was, it was weird having structure, it was weird having people who went to my games and who cared, And, and it really transformed me as a as a person, as a young person, without me really even, know, even knowing it. So when I went away to college, uh, I'll never forget, I was so excited to be there and be on my own and have this new independence. And so when my parents left, <coughs> I was excited. And so I don't remember crying. And uh, my, my mother called me um, several days later and said, you know, um, I, I wanted to talk to you because I just want to make sure we're going to hear from you again because I felt like that departure was a little cold and aloof. And I thought, well, wow, this is the warmest I've ever been, right? And, and it was that moment for me that I realized that I needed to give more of myself to not just take the love that they were giving me, but give more of myself. And that process helped um, transform me um, in a way that allowed me to have better relationships. And that was sort of when I became closer with my aunts and uncles and other folks like that.
3: It seems as though it, it probably was a survival mechanism that you had, I guess, embraced as you were um, going through these chaotic situations that you, know, you needed to be self-protective. Mm-hmm. You didn't necessarily want to reach out or be as affectionate because then maybe you just kind of get it taken away as suddenly. As wonderful as your foster family was, I mean, how could you know any other way of existing? Yeah, it
2: was absolutely a defense mechanism, as was acting out and the other things that I was getting involved in. When you go through foster care and you don't know where you're going to be the next day, you don't want to form relationships. And in fact, those weren't great experiences um, as much as that uh, the main state foster system allowed me to meet my eventual family and allowed me, <coughs> excuse me, to have the, the life that I now have. Um, there were experiences along the way that weren't positive. I had to become detached and aloof so that I could you know, protect my, my state of mind and my emotions and so forth. And so that's why I say when I finally were with them and met them, I felt like I was the warmest person ever. But um, that wasn't necessarily the case from their perspective. So I had to get to an even point at some point.
3: As the mother of um, three kids, two of whom are older, I actually can kind of relate to your, to the woman who became your adopted, um, unofficially adopted mom, mm-hmm. because I think sometimes even teenagers who have the most ideal situations, they just do what teenagers do, and they're like, okay, see ya, bye bye. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you that there is some. Um, Needing to come back around, and especially in situations like yours, and understand sort of how we impact those people around us. I think when you're younger, all you ever think about is how you are impacted by what's going on. As you get older, you realize, oh, I actually have some. There's something that I am doing that contributes to whatever's going on in the world. So I think for you, it's really interesting because you, you, you had a sort of semi-typical later teen age, but you were also dealing with some other stuff that you had kind of carried with you for many years. hmm
2: Yeah, for sure. And I I don't mean to say that, that the evolution of becoming a better, more connected person to my family was overnight, or even at that moment. I think that was the moment of realization, but I still think, you know, in my early 20s where I was still, I think we're all still discovering ourselves. Uh, I was very focused on my career and on success and i was working in politics at the time on the presidential election and i worked at the dnc and doing all these things and it was about achievement but it was about achievement for the sake of achievement to sort of show people that i could do things um it's a great book called um drama of the gifted child by Alice Miller. Um, And I read it actually when I was 26. And it was like, wow, it was a light bulb went off because she talks about that how you can become a little narcissistic or achievement oriented for the sake of that. And after I read the book, I realized that that if I lost all of that, there'd be nothing left. And so I needed to find a way to have more balance in my life, and that was a journey. It didn't even happen right after I read the book. It was a journey of self-discovery, of wellness, being healthier, making better decisions about my lifestyle, um, about my relationships, uh, both family relationships and uh, relationships with men, and a lot of writing. I, I like to write, and that's how I get things out. So I did tons of write. I've kept a journal since I was three, and I've just got tons of things on paper. You can go back and read it and go, oh, gosh, (laughs) really? Was I that person at that moment? So I think through that process, through a lot of reading and research and understanding the impact of those things that happened to the little girl, me as a little girl, and how it impacts you as an adult person, uh, helped me find better balance. I still was important to me to do well. In work or business, um, but that didn't have to come at, at a price of not having strong friendships or relationships or just be, you know, I sort of had become the friend or the girlfriend that everyone wanted as opposed to who I wanted to be. So finding that balance was really tough, but, um, and it's all, you know, it's a work in progress <laughs> even today.
3: Well, that idea that um, you would maybe even more than your average individual need to be the person that everybody else. Wanted to be that you wanted you had to play roles depending upon whatever given situation you were in, starting from you know eighth grade or maybe even earlier, and then finally coming to a place where you're like, all right, who who am I, and what does this mean, and how how do I change things so that my life moves forward in a more authentic way? Yeah. I think that's something a lot of people don't get to, like, who don't you know who don't have to do all of the the work that you've had to do over the course of your journey. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't even recall who gave me the book, but I had a couple moments that happened to me as a twenty-ish person, and I had some really good mentors, uh, you know, business or work mentors who became per- personal mentors as well, who had really balanced lives, and I think that they saw some of those things in me um, and had conversations with me. It's always these these touch points in life. It, where you might not realize that something you said or did really can transform a person in that moment. I had those kinds of touch points, I think, in my 20s, which is what led me to, uh, back to my writing, led me to read that book or read some other books and, and to be on this journey. But I also I also always wanted to be a better person because of my parents. Because they set such a wonderful example. Um, even now, I mean, if my if my mom has an extra dollar in her pocket, she's not spending it on herself. She's you know spending it on something for my dad or for her kids or for to come up with a new little project for you know my nieces and nephews. And that's just their There they have given everything to so many people. Um, and that's so admirable, and especially in today's society, where it's all about me, 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 and how many more things can I get? And that self-discovery, I think, is because of the example they have set
3: for me.
0: There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room main seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com.
3: Your father was an educator. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's retired now, I think. Um, And that was an important part of um, creating some stability for you and having this crossover between your home life and your school life Mm -hmm. was that you had somebody who was kind of paying attention all the way through. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm asking, I don't know that you can answer this question, but why do you think he was so drawn to helping kids who needed that extra something. I mean, some, it would be easy to just say, you know, come to school, I'm doing my job. When you leave, it's not my problem. Mm -hmm. But this was a person, he and his wife, your adoptive parents who were, you know, unofficial foster parent, adoptive parent. um, This was a choice that they made. This is how they wanted to live their own lives. Mm -hmm. I know for my
2: mom, it comes from her mom. They they both come from... Uh, families that had meager means but always gave back, and so, yeah, my mom and my aunt, my aunt Gail, are the literally. I mean, when people meet them, they're like, oh my gosh, they're the nicest people I've ever met. they you know, soft, um, a soft touch to every situation, um, very thoughtful, super sweet. Sometimes giving too much, and you know, have to step back and say, I got to take care of myself. And sometimes we have to do that for them. So I think that comes from their family. For my dad, um, you know, he came from a, a little bit of a larger family. Again, you know, a, of not many means, and you know, he was the the tough kid, very athletic, but the tough kid, you know, getting to fights, and um, uh, but still always, you know, good athlete, good in school, always did well. So you know, but you know, a typical childhood. Um, and I don't think anybody else in his family became educators but I think it's something about his experience as a young person finding himself um, and the things that sports and education did for him caused him to want to do that for others and you know I don't know how much of this you know is environmental or you know to, that leads you down this path but they just have this special place for young people, for kids, even now. I mean, they're both retired and, you know, they spend so much time with my cousin's little babies, which I do too, but they just, they're really into that um, childhood development.
3: It was wonderful to meet your parents um, last year at the Kenny Bungport Festival when you were debuting um, the Gilded Nut products. And it was also wonderful to see how important it was to you that we meet your parents, you know, that you literally, you know, walked across the <laughs> tent and said, These, I want you to meet my parents, you know, and, and that is something that you don't always see, that that kind of closeness and that pride and having that relationship. At the same time, you also have a relationship, I think, not quite the same relationship with your biological mm-hmm. mother, who still, I believe, lives, lives in the state. Mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes in situations like this, where there's not really, you can't really say like somebody's to blame. You'd like to come up with some reason why your life has gone astray. but It's just so complicated. You have to come to a place of just, you know, wherever I am right now, this is where I'm going to be. I wonder if that's a process that you had to go through yourself so that you could be at a place of peace with this family situation.
2: Yeah, I think, well, she does still live in Prescott, Maine. We don't really have much contact. I have a younger sister, same mom. Um, So I know what my biological mother is doing more through her because she and I, she lives in Virginia and she and I are in touch and spend holidays together and so forth. I think as a young person, it's normal to, to blame. You know, it's because of you that this happened. And I did a lot of that, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of, I'm cutting you off because, you you know, you were responsible or by doing nothing, you were even more responsible. Um, and I think during that self-discovery period we talked about earlier, I had to um, think about her life and how she got there as well. And, you know, she is from essentially, I and mean, if you've ever been to the Philippines, it is a third world country by so many definitions. Um, and even though she had some family members who were really close, others were not, I think it was somewhat of a tough family situation for her too, um, and at the time, That was the early 70s at the time that she ended up coming over to the U.S. from the Philippines. It was about escaping um, the uh, situation that was prevalent in the Philippines, the abject poverty, the lack of jobs, the lack of um, skills training for real jobs, and those sorts of things. So really you saw a lot of women, frankly, marry American men, Um, and move or other people in the military from around the world um, that were stationed in the Philippines during that time um, post-Vietnam War um, Who who needed to get out who wanted to get out Um, so that I think her life was all about that Um, So while I pointed fingers I had to spend some time thinking about her life and how she got here and then being here and not Um, I mean, she saw snow for the first time when she came here. So, like, think about that as such a basic thing and how foreign everything else must have been. And um, so I think I had to go through all that, and I literally picked up the phone and told her that I forgave her. Um, You know, people always say that forgiveness is lethargic, and um, I don't know, it was right for me. It doesn't necessarily work for everybody, um, but it was right for me, and I think it was... um, think she had put a lot of the things out of her mind and um, we didn't need to get into a discussion about you did this, you did that, didn't you, now I forgive you. It was more like, you know, there were a lot of things that happened um, for which I forgive you and, and that helped bring me a lot of peace. I'm not sure if it did anything for her. but um, But anyway, my relationship with my parents um, you know, they are my parents, and so there's not a lot of crossover. I don't really see my biological mother. I just hear about her through my sister.
3: Well, I appreciate um, your parents giving you the structure that you needed and becoming your parents when they did. It obviously um, meant a great deal in your life. I suspect that they impacted other lives of other children in ways that we can't really know um, at this point. For sure. But how can people find out about, speaking of your success, how can people find out about the Gilded Nut Snack Company? Um, we
2: are online, nut.com. Um And if they're in the Portland area, you can find us at Brown Trading and LaRue Kitchen. If you're in Camden at the Camden Harbor Inn, um, uh, Lily Lupine. Um, and they're in some Kenny port stores as well. I, didn't, I don't want to go through the entire list, but we are available locally. But if you have any questions, just go. You can contact, contact us online as well.
3: And I can attest to the fact that these are very lovingly crafted and delicious. So as you're eating them, you're going to feel the positive energy. It's really something that, that comes across. Um, good luck with your future um, endeavors. I know you're going to be successful. Thank you. Um, and Thank you for coming in. We've been uh, talking with Catherine York, the co-founder of the Gilded Nuts Snack Company, and so many more things. Um, I appreciate your being with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for
3: having me. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 157, Fostering Family Connections. Our guests have included Christina Baker-Klein and Catherine York. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as doctorlisa and catch my daily run photos as bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Fostering Family Connections show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine. Apothecary by Design. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage. Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial. Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms. And Bangor Savings Bank. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.